Hey everybody, I'm your host Omar Crook. Thanks for tuning in to Living with a Genius. On this episode, I had the great fortune of interviewing poet and historian and professor and doctor Tony Silvestri. What a great guy. I've known him for, for a number of years. I was introduced to him through our mutual friend Eric Whitaker. And he happened to be on vacation this weekend here in Los Angeles visiting and he was gracious enough to give me an hour of his time for this interview. It's revealing, it's heartbreaking, it's funny, it's touching, and I really tip my hat to Tony for being so candid with me, and I'm really grateful for the time I had with him to catch up a little bit, and I hope you find some interesting things in the interview and get something from it. Thanks again for listening. How, how, what kind of level is good? Yeah, this is it. Is that all right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you can talk, you can talk however you'd like. All right. Um, so thanks cool. for meeting with me. Well, it's my pleasure. It's really nice to see you, man. It's good to see you too. It's been a long time. I oh, mean, it's been. It's at least five or six years, I think. Wow. Even more, even more than that. You think so? Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well. But Facebook makes it seem like it hasn't been that long. I mean, I, I've seen your kids and I've seen your life and what you post. And, and I, I was just telling Eric, I love Facebook for that reason. Me too. Yeah, me too. Well, you look great, man. Thank you. You look just the same. I feel good. Yeah, I'm really glad. Um, I wanted to add, I was thinking about what I was going to talk to you about on the way over here. Um, and I did, I looked, I looked you up on online a little bit to try and find a little bit more information because I only know you through Eric. Right. I don't know you, um, as well as I'd like, we don't live near each other. Um, but I saw that you were here in LA. First you, you were in Nevada. Mm-hmm. Um, where you went to school. Is that where you met Eric? At, uh, yeah, at UNLV? yeah, but I had lived here for a while before I went back. Oh, and, I see. And met him there. I grew up in Las Vegas. Yes. And went to college here in Los Angeles. At USC? Uh, for, for my grad work. I went to Loyola Marymount here for oh, my undergrad. Oh, sure. Uh, over by the marina. Absolutely, yeah. And, uh, and then started at USC for grad school and went there for four years. And then I took my qualifying exams for my, for my doctorate and kind of crashed and burned. I, I was so mm-hmm. burnt out. I needed to pr- I needed to uh, study for my quals, mm-hmm. and then maybe get a start on my dissertation. And I was out of money and just burnt out. And so I moved home to live with my parents mm-hmm. for a year. Back to back Las to Vegas. Las Vegas, uh-huh. right? And during that year, the first semester I spent studying for my qualifying exams, which I took back in LA in the December of that year. Mm-hmm. And then for the second semester of that year, I started working on my dissertation. But I had been in choir all those years here in LA. Really? And at Loyola Marymount, and I just continued singing at Loyola Marymount after I graduated. And you can't not be in choir. So that year I lived in Las Vegas, I was missing choir. And uh-huh. So I went to UNLV and I introduced myself to the UNLV director and said, this is who I am. This is where I've sung before. I'd really like to be in one of your choirs. Do you have room for me? And uh, he heard me sing and put me into a group that had Eric in it. You're kidding. As an undergrad. So I was already a doctoral student when I met Eric, who was still an undergrad. We're about we're four or five years apart in age. So, that's crazy. I didn't so know that. that. That's how we first met. And that so you was just volunteered. You just volunteered at the yeah. choir, and then you. So you. Okay. So you were in L.A. and then you moved to Nevada. And then did you move back here? Yes. After I'm, that, I moved back here after that year and uh, got a job teaching at the Buckley School sure. in Sherman Oaks. Sure. And I taught there for fifteen more years. Um, 
And now you're in Lawrence, Kansas. Lawrence, Kansas, right. And what what took you from from LA to Kansas of all places? Yeah, it's a, it's a long story. My my uh, at Buckley, I met and married the Latin teacher there, and uh, we had a couple of kids. Sure. And then Julie got cancer in 2003 yes. and fought it for a couple of years, and she died in 2005. Oh, jeez. And the kids were little. They were seven and three at the time. And our plan, of course, was that we both taught at Buckley. We would both we both loved Buckley. We mm-hmm. would retire from there. Our mm-hmm. kids would go to that school, and right. we had we would have the perfect LA life. Right. Well, there were a lot of ghosts here, as you can imagine. You know, the school was hard to be there because she wasn't there with me. Mm-hmm. Our home was hard to be in without with all her. the memories. Sure. Mm-hmm. And uh, her parents lived in San Francisco and San Diego. My parents had retired and moved to Lawrence, Kansas, where I my sister see. and her husband live. And so I needed to move where my parents lived. Sure. If they lived in Timbuktu, I would have moved to Timbuktu. If they lived in Las Vegas, I would have moved back to Las Vegas. Sure. For the for the family for and, the family and, and for help. help. For help. Exactly. I you know, I don't know how that that was my other question. So we have a I you probably you know, we have a 3-month-old at home. Mm-hmm. We have a 3-year-old at home. I'd set up a date morning with my wife today and it was it just didn't work out very well and we're we're both exhausted and <laughs> I I frankly how did you how do you do it i mean how have you raised two kids by yourself you just you just plow through and have a professorship you're yeah. at uh, at a university right i just uh, it's un, it's crazy i feel like i'm in the weeds all the time well i mean as parents you know you just do what has to be done sure okay you know dad yeah i don't feel very good Blah, right yeah. and then you have barf to clean up all yeah. night long at three o'clock you, you know you have body fluids of one type or another that you have to clean up. You have a dirty car all the time. You have you can't do this because you have to do that. That's Parents right. just are used to doing that. That's all right. the sacrifices and compromises and changes in your agenda that happen because of you know variable one and variable two. Sure, sure. Uh, and so when you're a single parent, it just that gets just cranked up mm-hmm. and magnified, and mm-hmm. you really feel hijacked all the time. Mm-hmm. You feel like you have no agenda. And so it's taken me a very long time, not only to grieve the mm-hmm. loss of my wife mm-hmm. and, and the circumstances under which I become, became a, a, a single parent, sure, but getting used to that, trying to keep my full-time job, trying to nurture the, this creative job, mm-hmm. which acts as a kind of second full-time job for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the meantime, try to remember who I am at my core and right. what, what am I about so that when my kids are gone which is happening very soon. My son is almost 18 and he's going to be going to college next year. And then four years later, my daughter will follow and I'll be rattling around my huge old house by myself. Mm -hmm. And so what do I have to fall back on? I mean, every empty nester parent goes through that. But -hmm. in my case in particular, my whole life for the last 11 years has been dedicated to raising my kids, Mm -hmm. to making ends meet, to keeping a household functioning, you know, just this go, 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 go Mm -hmm. all the time. And so in order for there not to be this crash of my life, when my daughter, Emma, Mm -hmm. finally goes off to college, I've been slowly adding back into my schedule, as hectic as that is, hobbies and interests and deeper things and spiritual things and stuff that I'm going to need to rebuild myself when the time comes for me to do that. Interesting. Um, God, I, this oh, just makes me, that's, how did your kids react to losing their mom? I mean, have, because I, I, the reason I ask is when I was 14, I lost my grandfather 
and he he really was a huge influence in my life. My folks divorced when I was four, and I went through about ten years of really struggling. And I still I still grieve the loss of my grandfather. I still deal with it. I still think about it. Is that something that you talk to your kids about openly? Is it something oh, yeah. that uh, do you see? Um, have you had some? I mean, you must have had trials and tribulations mm-hmm. and overcome overcoming those those things. How did you deal with that? Sure, you know. With cancer, it's different than with a car accident or, mm-hmm. or some accident where you have time to grieve before the death and you have time to say goodbye. And and so in, in a way, I had time to prepare myself and to prepare the kids, mm-hmm. even though Julie was not ready to accept the idea that she was going to die or that she could die. Right up to the end. So right up to the very, oh, very Jesus. end. And so it, it wasn't as easy as it could have been sure. as deaths go. I mean, nobody wants to die at age 35, but... Um, so part of it was taking the kids to a therapist in anticipation, mm-hmm. you know, just mm-hmm. to deal with their mother's sickness and the changes in their lives mm-hmm. and, and so on. And it was mostly play therapy. I mean, what do you do mm-hmm. to sure. for a six-year-old and a two-year-old? Sure. My son and daughter reacted differently, of course. Mm-hmm. Thomas has memories of his mom. Mm-hmm. Um, he was in second grade, I think, when she died. Right. It, but right. Emma was only three. So Emma, she only ever knew a kind of chaotic house with lots of people coming and going and people delivering meals. And she just, she had needs that needed to be met. So she would raise up her hands and get picked up by somebody. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't her mom. It was grandma. It was aunts and right, uncles and right. American Hila and friends and whomever were over. Um, and so she just adapted and was able to roll with the punches and grew up just fine. Right. Cause she didn't know any, any better. Thomas had a, a lot harder time. He was very close to his mom and, and and he kind of clammed up, mm-hmm. and become maybe became a little more insular, a little more insular, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so he, he's been a little tougher nut. How, how are they doing now? They're, I think they're doing fine. Yeah. I mean, Thomas will turn eighteen here pretty soon. And where's he going to school? To University of Arkansas. Wow, what is he studying? He wants to study uh, accounting. Uh huh. Which isn't like me. And I thought at first, oh my gosh, why accounting? But then I thought, you know. As an accountant, you can work anywhere in the world. That's right. In any city you want. Mm -hmm. You can work in any industry that you want. He can Mm -hmm. work for the Lakers. He can work for the Metropolitan Opera. He can Mm -hmm. work for Greenpeace. He can work for Fortune 500 company. It's the variety of things that you can do. Everybody needs an accountant. That's right. So um, it'll give him him lots and lots of opportunities that I certainly didn't have as an academic. So he he had no interest in following in your footsteps as a historian. He's he's a, a poet. he's a bright kid. He mm-hmm. has a super memory, uh, a memory for names and dates too. I mean, he's has got a historian's memory. Interesting. And, and he did as a kid. You know, he memorized all the presidents and all the vice presidents, sure. and what state they were from, and the dates of their their administration and stuff sure. like that. Um, but now that's turned towards more sports statistics. And hmm. He can tell you, you know, baseball teams and who's on what team and what their statistics are. Right. And any sport. Are you a sport um, fanatic? Not really. No. So he he's and, really he forging his not, own way. He's forging his own way. And, I, and I'm thankful for that. I wish we had more in common. As, as our time together is drawing to a close, I really feel very keenly that that I'm a real different animal than he is and and while I was supportive of him and I'd go to as many games sure. as I could and and support him in all the ways that he needed to be supported um we weren't as close as as buds I understand the yeah, way yeah, yeah. it would have been had I really been into sports oh it really uh it really punches me in the gut when I hear you say as as our time comes to a close I just 
well, I don't know how so I'm, me I mean, I understand that. what you're saying. Your as, daily as life. As one season yes. of our relationship together closes yes, and, and opens the, up another yes. season. Yeah. I'm, but I look I'm forward to seeing prepared. the adult that he becomes and, and having that adult relationship with mm-hmm. him. Mm-hmm. It's funny that, she, that he's going into accounting when, I mean, I, I've already intimated this, but it's so different from what you've studied. And that, that was another one of my questions. And I have known you for a long time, and we have seen each other on and off for years. But I never um, got the story of how you went from studying history to writing poetry Mm -hmm. and how those two are connected. Well, they are connected, and I use my skills as a historian all the time in the poetry that I'm asked to write. Mm -hmm. Um, There are composers who want an antiquarian style, or Mm -hmm. they want something that needs research Mm -hmm. uh, to create a voice. And what's your specialty, your field in Uh, history? Roman and medieval. Ah, I see. Okay. well, that makes sense. Roman history, church history, medieval European history. Those are my, my dissertation fields. And you started with Eric, but now you've branched out to other composers. Right, yeah? right. The, the transition from, I mean, I've always loved words, but I'm not trained as a poet. I've mm-hmm. never had any real classes in how to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are people that study their whole careers and they're magnificent artists at it. Um, I just got lucky. My best friend's a composer mm-hmm. and a darn good one. Mm-hmm. And he had a couple of really interesting problems mm-hmm. that he asked me to help him solve with poetry and those pieces became successful and other composers found out about me and then all this other stuff has just blossomed as a result of a very um, propitious lucky relationship sure. with Eric and and like your son you can be a poet anywhere in the right country so living in Kansas is not a hindrance no in any way and it's a beautiful place to be. And I think Julie would have loved it there. And I wish we had moved earlier. She had, Did she visit Kansas with you? She, when, yeah, we, we mm-hmm. visited my sister. But she was already ill at the time. I see. And, uh, and so I'm not sure if she had as positive an experience just because she was struggling with her illness. And was she from Los Angeles? Yeah. Oh, I see. From Woodland Hills, yeah. She I was see. born and raised in the San Fernando Valley. She went to Buckley as a student, her mother was a teacher there. Wow. So their history as a family with Buckley went way, way back. And so wow. it just seemed natural that, that we would both retire from there and it sure. would just be wonderful. And we had a great experience. I still miss it. Not a day goes by when I don't Do you ever consider coming back? I considered it for a while after yeah. I moved. After yeah. I moved back to Kansas, I thought, oh, oh my gosh. What have what, I done? What have I done? <laughs> um, but... I still think very fondly of my time at Buckley, and mm-hmm. my, I'm in touch with my colleagues there. Um, and your and and her parents are still here. Her parents, uh, they had close? divorced a long time ago, I and see. her mom and and her family are in San Diego now. Mm-hmm. And her dad and his family lived up in Menlo Park in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. when he retired, they moved to Lawrence. Oh, that's nice. So my kids then, for the last, I think, seven, eight years, have had two sets of grandparents, two of three sets, close by, local. Uh, my mother-in-law is the choir director at my kids' school. Wow. And so they see her every day. Um, it, it's nice. It, it's really been wonderful help for me. And it's great, too, to have Julie's dad there to 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 be a presence of their mother in, mm-hmm. in their lives mm-hmm. and he's very good at that about that's fantastic bringing her up and, and making sure that we remember her and in a positive way and any anything 
any other people in your life? Any? How's your love life? How's that going? Well, there really is no love life yeah. other than I love myself. And it's yeah. taken me a long, long time to get mm-hmm. to a place where, where I want to spend time and investment on myself. Now, you seem so still and so calm. Are you meditating? What's the secret? What do you do? <laughs> <laughs> it's, I'm all fa- I'm faking it. Um, you know, I had a long talk with Eric today and yesterday about all about all that. And, and it's all wrapped up, too, I think, in the relational thing. I was married um, after Julie. Sure. I, I fell in I, love. I remember, yeah. And it was a wonderful a wonderful mistake. Mm-hmm. Um, she's She was wonderful, but she was too young, and I shouldn't have asked, and she shouldn't have said yes. We Neither of us were ready. Well, you find out the hard way, uh, We found out yeah. the hard way, sure. and it was as easy as, as those kind of breakups can go. Mm-hmm. I have no regrets about that, but it, it did hurt the kids a lot. I think they... Oh, they grew close to they her. They grew close to her, and I think this was... Wow, we finally have a mom again, and oh, and then it didn't work. So I, I, I feel really bad still about, well, about a selfish thing that I did for myself that ended up having collateral damage in my kid's emotional life. And so I'm still working about that. But anyway, um, I've had a couple of on and off relationships, and, and they were wonderful with wonderful women. But ultimately, I wasn't happy because I felt pulled away from my children mm-hmm. who need me. Mm-hmm. And, and myself, I had given and given and given and given and mm-hmm. sacrificed and got hijacked for all these years of dealing with Julie's illness. And this is not what I signed up for. And, you know, single dads, I think, have a harder time. Mm-hmm. I mean, this will, this is awful to say, but have a harder time than single moms. Single dads aren't wired to be single dads. That's something that, yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, we talk about that a lot. Yeah. It's like single moms, I think they have, there's a core of who they are that they can draw on. A well of strength that guys just don't have mm-hmm. and so I had to conjure all of that mm-hmm. um, and so now I've decided I don't want to be in a relationship with anyone mm-hmm. I'd like to spend that time because I'm intense when I'm in a relationship I give it a hundred percent and mm-hmm. I, I'm all in and I want to be very close mm-hmm. and so it's it's consuming sure and, and, and as it should be for me, as my pattern is. Mm-hmm. And so right now in this season of my life, I need to focus on my kids and me. And your job. And, and my job mm-hmm. and my creativity. And I will say, ever since I've let go of the idea of dating and being in a relationship, mm-hmm. my creative life has simply exploded. Wow. All that energy has gone towards writing of poetry and I'm composing music now and I'm painting more and uh, there's just all this and I'm exploring interests deep interests of my own mm-hmm. uh, Irish music for example mm-hmm. I've taken up playing an instrument what are you playing I play concertina Anglo concertina wow and I go to a pub every Sunday for an Irish traditional and session you, did you have I, musical training when you were young just as a chorister wow that's it that's it wow and I can read music you know in choir sure but I've never played an instrument. And, and did you teach yourself? What, I just taught myself. Yeah. Wow. Basically. I went to Ireland and was blown away by pub sessions and trad music. And I just, I've always liked Irish music. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to learn that. I'm going to pick up a folk instrument. And, and so I did my research and thought, what folk instrument looks cool to me? And I liked the idea of a concertina. It's both chordal and melodic. Mm-hmm. Um, so I picked one That's up at really Cheapy something. and taught myself how to play it. And and, and is and, there some is there a, a place that you play in Lawrence, Kansas? Yeah, there's a pub uh, um, that uh, there's a, just a regular Irish session every Sunday night. And maybe a dozen of us get together. And sometimes it's upwards of 20, 25 people if the Kansas City people all show up. Sometimes it's just a core of five or six. Um, but we're there every single Sunday, rain or shine, Super Bowl, Mother's Day. 
Wow. <laughs> we don't care wow, when it is. Wow. We're there to have a Guinness and to play our diddly D music, and we love it. And you, you mentioned painting? Yes. Is that something that you've always done or something that you've I've just picked I've always liked up? it, and I'm self-taught in mm-hmm. that. And, and I'm, I'm an antiquarian painter. I don't even know how to describe describe it. I paint icons, panel paintings, okay. um, manuscript illumination. I try to reproduce the techniques and styles and using the right materials mm-hmm. of ancient artists. Let me guess. You went to Ireland and you saw the Book of Kells. I did. <laughs> First thing. <laughs> I did the same thing. It was a pilgrimage. Yeah, it's really something, isn't it? Yeah, it's amazing. And, and I liked the way it's presented to this sort of museum that they have you walk through. It's it's quite informative about uh, the the materials, the style, other manuscripts in that in that tradition, mm-hmm. I think was pretty well done. Yeah, it is beautiful. Um, how did you have the courage to just come up with something uh, mm-hmm. poetically? I mean, for me, Hila asked me to do a show for her a few years ago, and I wrote four pieces of of poetry and produced the video for it. And I, it was really um, terrifying for mm-hmm. me to sit in the audience and 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 not know what was going to happen yeah. as, as my voice was coming up over the loudspeakers into the audience. Um, did you have any trepidation about, I guess, I guess I would imagine you just wrote something and Eric said, I like it or I don't like it. Well, yeah, I did have trepidation. The first project we worked together was an easy one. It was just an academic exercise. I see. Uh, he had an English poem that he wanted me to translate into Latin and as a singer. Mm-hmm. So, I, I looked at it and I thought, okay, there, ma- the many ways, yeah, there are many mm-hmm. ways of doing it and to render what, what it was that he had given to me in English. And so I chose a text, a translation that I thought, oh, yeah, this sounds singable. Mm-hmm. It gives him some really good sounds mm-hmm. to work with. And that became Luke's Arumque, which was a great piece. Sure. And it did very well. Um, <clears throat> the next co- uh, collaboration, Eric, it was at the beginning of his career, he had won a very prestigious uh, award from the American Choral Directors Association, the Brock Commission, which mm-hmm. is a big deal. Mm-hmm. And he's like, Tony, I want you to write this text. And I, I total trepidation. No, I, I would ruin it. Why do you want to work with me? Go for a real poet. I, I don't have any training. I just, it was excuse after excuse after sure. excuse. And he insisted, no, I want to work with you. I think it would be really fun. We had some initial conversations about what this piece would be like, and and we both kind of geeked out about it and had a really wonderful, wonderful conversation. And you did it over the phone? You'd, uh, you oh, no, were, we lived, you were here. We you lived, were still yeah, living here. We were still, we were sure. lived about Got a it. mile from one another at Got that it. time, mm-hmm. seeing each other all the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, that became uh, Leonardo Dreams of His Flying Machine, which was a truly organic piece of music where where I was present for all of the musical construction. Mm-hmm. He was present for all of the lyrical construction. The real collaboration. Super collaboration. And and it's a magical piece because of that. Wow. Um, I, I've collaborated in every conceivable way. Uh, music first, lyrics first, mm-hmm. in the same room, not in the same room, not mm-hmm. on the same continent. You know, no contact whatsoever between me and the composer and mm-hmm. intense contact. Uh, it, it was the best. It was by far the best, and it created an electric, amazing, organic piece of music that is fun to sing, it's fun to work on, it's fun to listen to. That's right. It never loses its its uh, sparkle. For and me. what other, you've worked with some other composers too recently. Yeah, um, maybe for the last 10 years or so, wow. my, my collaboration with Eric has blossomed into relationships with other composers. Mm-hmm. Uh, most notably, uh, Ola Yelo, mm-hmm. a Norwegian composer living here in the United States. We have five or six different collaborations together. Uh, Dan Forrest, a composer out of uh, North Carolina or South Carolina. I think North Carolina he lives in. 
um, these are pretty well-known um, sure. choral composers in, in very different styles um, than Eric. Mm-hmm. Um, I've worked with a couple of German composers, a couple of British composers, um, Andrea Ramsey also here in the United States for some children's choir commissions that, mm-hmm. that we had. Um, and you did something with uh, Houston Grand, didn't you? Didn't yeah. you write a piece for Houston? Yeah. Mark Buller, a composer in Houston, was commissioned by Houston Grand Opera to write a children's opera for mm-hmm. them. They have an outreach program sure. that's been going on for years and years and years mm-hmm. where they take a uh, an adapted opera or a, a brand new commissioned opera mm-hmm. to schools. Mm-hmm. And uh, they said, you know, do you have any ideas about a libretto? And he had heard of my choral work with other composers. And he said, well, what about commissioning Silvestri to do a libretto mm-hmm. for me. And so they contacted me. They did a little research on my style and what I had done, and, and it was a nice fit. And so they commissioned me for not one but two operas okay. with Mark Buller. And they were, they were a hoot. They were really fun to work And did work you get on. to see the performances? Oh, it was great. Isn't that terrific? They brought me out for a workshop with, yeah. the, with the cast mm-hmm. and the director. And then a few months later when they finally performed it in front of kids. Isn't it great? Oh, it was so great to hear kids laugh at jokes oh, that I had great. written. Yeah. Um, and to see the genesis of scenes, you know, to, to know, to see the, the, the final performance of something that I had seen from the very, the very genesis of that joke yeah, or that gag or whatever. And to hear little kids laugh, it was just, it was great. I, I, I spent um, a couple of years doing that actually in Cincinnati mm. Uh, and then I went to Dayton opera, opera and sang a few things there. And then when I came back to Cincinnati from Dayton, they had me co-write a piece for them for their outreach program. So I have a little experience with that too. And I, I'll tell you, it's just, I don't know, seeing the looks on their faces and, you know, sometimes they cover their yeah. ears, yeah. The, you know, yeah. when the singing's loud or the, um, but it's, it's really magical to see them so engaged and do you have them ask questions afterwards oh always that's always the best oh i love the questions are your shoes real absolutely <laughs> absolutely and sometimes oh they God. they used to come up and and they oh, it's very strange like they just want to touch you they'd, they'd hang on to your shirt <laughs> or they'd look up to you you know and oh it's just really right it's really really cute i would love to do more of that and mm-hmm. in writing uh, writing for kids was fantastic mm-hmm. fun and what um, about sleep uh the book was that yeah. For children as well? Uh, well, the, the piece, the I mean, choral no, piece no, the, isn't the for book children, that, but the book that yeah. you published. The book was illustrated by a Dutch uh, illustrator, a Dutch mm-hmm. artist, mm-hmm. who was a chorister and mm-hmm. who had sung Sleep and then contacted us to say, hey, this should be a children's book. And Eric and I said, yeah, it should. Why don't you do some paintings and we'll see what we how we like it. And we were blown away and uh, tried to get the book published, and we wanted a recording to be associated with it, but the who owns the recording and which one, too many lawyers got oh, involved, geez, yeah. and so the whole thing blew up. And so Anna, the, the Dutch artist, and I, the two of us decided to do a Kickstarter and publish it ourselves. Mm-hmm. So uh, we raised some money, a lot of money, and we ended up being able to have it very finely printed by a wonderful uh, uh, printer in Wisconsin, Wow. The same people that did Where the Wild Things Are You're and kidding. Polar Express. And those are sort of akin to his illustration style. I see. And so we wanted those folks who could really do a great job mm-hmm. to handle it. It was expensive to produce mm-hmm. it here in the U.S., Absolutely. but we had money from Kickstarter to do it. So we just chose a shorter, a smaller run. Mm-hmm. So they would be few of them, fewer of them, but more precious. Yes. Um, and they've done very, very well. Really? And it's been so much fun to sign books and to... To have sleep have a completely new life. Sure. Now, he had heard me tell the story about Julie's death mm-hmm. and 
and what sleep means to me now. Tell me about it. Well, when I wrote it, uh, Julie was well and life was great. Mm -hmm. Thomas was three years old. He mm -hmm. wouldn't go to sleep. I mean, you know how this oh, is. Man. Daddy, I We're need right to go potty. We're right there. Daddy, I need a glass he of just, water. My son just There's did that today. under my bed. Just today. Yeah. He said, I've got to go potty. He sits on the toilet. Yeah. No potty. He's not doing anything. <laughs> He's just sitting there. That's right. Nothing. So uh. I had this challenge of taking Frost stopping by Woods and mm -hmm. replacing the text, right? And Eric had already said it, painted it so beautifully. And so I had, I had some, some limitations to what I could do to mm -hmm. replace that text. And mm -hmm. one of the things I had was it had to end with the word sleep because it just ended with this beautiful meditation into nothing on mm -hmm. the word sleep. And so I thought, oh, okay, I'll make it about sleep. And at that time, Thomas wouldn't go to bed. And so the poem is about a little kid not wanting to surrender to go to sleep. Yeah. And we know how that is. They Absolutely. just want to stay awake. Absolutely. Being awake is awesome. They fight it. They fight it. So ostensibly, that's what the poem is about. Mm -hmm. Now, after that, Julie got sick. She fought her cancer. Did she, was it she, breast cancer? It was ovarian cancer. Ovarian cancer, okay. And it came back a couple of different times. Uh, so she we went into in remission and, and then, then... Yeah, it oh, was just it was rough. Okay. And so uh, when she died, it was, it was, it was awful. It mm -hmm. was painful and it was, she was frightened. Oh my and God. They just, the angels really dragged her into heaven against her will. And, and so sleep now to me, is I like to describe it as the soundtrack of the death, the passing that I wish she had had. A requiem of sorts. A requiem, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so whenever I hear it performed, whenever I, I workshop with a choir or whatever, I just quietly offer whatever it is they're going to sing. I offer it up to her, to God, to spirit, to the universe. Yeah, are, are you a religious person? I, I'm a very deeply spiritual uh -huh. person. And uh -huh. I and I, I flirt with being religious. Yeah, I, um, I kind of envy people who are religious, actually. I, I go back and forth. I was raised Catholic, but I, I and I went to Catholic University. Mm -hmm. I've sung in church choirs. Mm -hmm. But for many reasons, I've flitted in and out sure. of the Catholic Church. And I sang for a oh. long time with an Orthodox choir, which I loved. Mm -hmm. um, I loved the tradition. I loved the spirituality. Mm -hmm. uh, I understood Christianity much better in that community. Mm -hmm. In that context. In that uh -huh. context. Mm -hmm. um, was Julie, Julie religious? Julie was Presbyterian. She very was. Very religious, very devout. Oh, okay. Um, and she was in the praise band and the whole thing. But that was an idiom of worship that was f alien to me. I could never really latch on to to the Presbyterian style. You like the formality of I like the liturgical formality, yeah. you know, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and she could never get it. So for a while, for a few years, we went together to an Episcopal church, which I think is a very common, you know, compromise. spanning the Reformation right. compromise. And, you know, but now that she's gone, I could go to any church that I wanted to. Hmm. And so I went to a Catholic church in Lawrence for a while, and I loved the people there. Yeah. And I loved the priests, and it was really wonderful. Um, but I've gravitated back to the Episcopal church. There's Nothing, something... never Eastern philosophy, Eastern religions. Well, now that being said, I've taught world religions mm -hmm. for 30 years now. Huh. It's part of all my world history survey courses. Mm -hmm. And I've been profoundly affected by teaching Hinduism, Buddhism, Confucianism, Islam all these years and it's permeated what I believe and so I can't that's why I hesitate to say that I'm religious sure. because or even to identify a denomination that I attend because I don't necessarily agree with everything yeah, that and then they it, teach. Uh, there's some reconciliation that has to happen exactly and, sure. and so I don't want to give folks the wrong impression that because I sing in an Episcopal church choir that I buy into absolutely everything that that denomination mm -hmm. says now mm -hmm. you know do they get social justice right yeah do they get liturgy right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do they understand doubt? And are they welcome 
do they welcome doubt? Yes. And so the Episcopal Church checks off every single box yeah. that I would need. That's hard to turn down. That's hard to turn down. Yeah. But I think at the, the foundational level, I still have very profound doubts about God, about Jesus, about what it all means, who's right, who's Well, so not did St. Right. Thomas, so you're, so, in, you're, the, you're in, in good company. I'm in good company. Yeah. But I think I'm a, I'm a mystic more than anything else. I see. I love that God is unexplainable, unknowable, undefinable, mm-hmm. and I'm very comfortable with that ambiguity. Mm-hmm. And, and I do envy people who are very comfortable with the truth as they know it. Right. Uh, I struggle with it every day. But I'll tell you, that's, I think that's one of the things that wears me down the most, especially since I've had kids mm. um, late in life. I'm 46. I've got a newborn. And I think about my own mortality mm-hmm. a little bit more closely than I did before. Um, and I do envy just kind of a... I don't want to say a blind faith, but maybe that's what I'm getting at. It's, it's you just you. I wasn't raised in the church. I was raised as an atheist, and uh, I don't. I kind of don't have that to fall back on. And then right. I've got people that say, "Well, you know, maybe you should believe in Jesus just in case." And I always think, you know, <laughs> don't, don't you think he knows that? Like, right. I'm pretty sure he'd know right. that that was a ruse. You know, uh, I'm not going to hedge my bets with right. some. And, and you can't uh, conjure belief. Like yeah, that. that's the thing. Yeah, that's the thing. And you can. And then so many people give the concept of God so many human traits and foibles. And and the first thing I say, well, isn't God perfect and all-knowing and everywhere? Well, yes. Well, then why, 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 why is your God behaving like a a teenager? Right. You know, I mean, it's crazy. But anyway, that's just, that's my rant on, on the whole thing. No, and you're absolutely right. You know, I think religions, religions are truths. They started out as truths that people sort of instinctively knew. And then, and then to honor that truth, they they put the truth in a box. You have to assign something to it. Right. Yeah. So they put the truth in a box. And then to honor it, they put jewels on the box. And then they put that box in a bigger box. And then they build a church around the bigger box. And then they begin to worship the church. And they forget the truth that's inside. And this happened, you know, various times to various religions all throughout history. And I think mm-hmm. what we see in the news around us is the effects of... of fundamentalism absolutely of of blind belief of unquestioning belief rather than an embrace of doubt and difference Mm -hmm. and a return to what the truth is that's ensconced in the little tiny box at the center of all of our faith traditions Mm -hmm. and that truth is don't be a dick that's it that's it yeah be nice to one another (laughs) be nice to one another and and wonder about the world around you Mm -hmm. because it's an it's a wondrous thing Mm mm-hmm and I think when once you start forgetting that, you begin to abuse the environment, you begin to abuse each other, it's easy to other and then to objectify that's and then right. to destroy everything that's not you and the kind of clubbishness that, that different faith systems, political parties, neighborhoods, gated communities, mm-hmm. whatever it is, mm-hmm. we, we're, we're just walling ourselves Yeah, in. I wish there was a way to institutionalize religion in a way that truly mirrors the personal experience. Right. And the two just don't seem to jive with one another. That's, I will say, being in an Episcopal church, mm-hmm. at the very least, you have gay couples that are welcomed and are, are full parts of the church mm-hmm. and, can, can, and can fully participate in every possible way in the life of the church. Mm-hmm. That, that's an important thing to me. You have kids being welcomed and part of every part of the process. Communion is open to everyone. Mm-hmm. Christian, not Christian. 
So you don't have to you don't doubting, have to believe that Jesus uh, rolled the rock off and walked out of the cave. If you're called to come and participate, you come and participate. And we'll hmm. worry about all the details later. Another tradition that I think speaks to that is the Unitarian tradition mm-hmm. that welcomes, you know, where you are in your journey is fine with us. Let's come together and celebrate that together. You know, that there's not it's not dogmatic mm-hmm. where you have to lock in step with a particular set of rules right. or, or beliefs else. or else. Mm-hmm. And there are other traditions that are like that. Mm-hmm. And you get drummed out or if you don't like the way the preacher says something, you just go start your own church. Sure. Um, and it, really make the money. It's a huge tent. Mm-hmm. And I like those faith systems that are big tents that allow dissent and doubt. And I think it's people crucial. People wondering and in being part of their journey. And, and, and they all have that to one extent or another. And depends on the location you go and the kind of sure. pastoral staff that you have there. I think you can have good, good and bad in any organization. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've had good and bad experiences in every organization that sure. I've been a part of. But I think you're that. also describing democracy. Uh, the ideal of democracy yeah. is, the, is, you know, dissent and sure. discussion. And that used to work just fine, it's, and now it doesn't it anymore. It sure doesn't, no. No, it's, everything is so polarized. Don't get me started. <laughs> I mean... California is, boy living in Kansas, don't get me started. That's the thing. And, you know, Eric always reminds me how we really are the outliers yeah. in the country. And living in L.A., growing up in L.A., I just assume that everything's like L.A., until you drive across the country. Yeah, it's not. And it just isn't. It just isn't. It's a real shame. But so there are good people in all those big square states, um, well-meaning, who love their country. And that's true. Who love that each I agree other with, yes. And who, who, who want what's best for everyone. And I think, like again, like any group in any organization, people get trapped. Mm-hmm. And they get trapped in a particular way of thinking mm-hmm. that ultimately is not in their best interest. And I think that's happening politically all over the country. That's right. Um, I, did, I wanted to ask you about when your kids leave the house, um, what's what's the plan? Are you going to stay in Lawrence? Do you think you'll travel more? Do you think you'll start to retire from teaching a little bit more? Do you think you'll spend your time pursuing your hobbies a little bit mm-hmm. more vigorously? What? What? Yeah, all those things. All those things. Um, I like Lawrence. It's a wonderful place to base. My parents live there, and, mm-hmm. and they're they're young and active. But mm-hmm. you know, they're they're not as young and active as they used to be, and sure. so eventually they'll need some care. and And I don't see them moving some anywhere anytime soon. Yeah. My sister and her husband are both professors at KU, and mm. so they've doubled down on they're there Eastern Kansas, and so they're there. Mm-hmm. Uh, my in-laws retired to mm-hmm. Lawrence, so mm-hmm. it seems like a good thing for me to stay there. And I like it. It's a really wonderful place. But I live in a big house mm-hmm. that seemed appropriate at the time when I moved from L.A. with little kids and in a neighborhood full of kids and, mm-hmm. and all that. I'd much rather live now in a very small place closer to downtown Lawrence mm-hmm. where the pubs are and the sure. restaurants and the kind of life of a single person would be more... Um, it's more conducive to the life of a, of a loner, mm-hmm. uh, a lone person. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you sound like a, you have a real, a very vibrant social life, though. Yeah, you know, I, I'm in the dance community there. I like doing contra dance and English country dance, and I play Irish music. And do those folks uh, ever come over to your house? And yeah, we have yeah. sessions at the house, and, mm-hmm. and every once in so a while. So you don't compartmentalize them no. as just those things. Huh? No. Oh, that's great. For Halloween, for example, my friends and I, my Irish music friends, we all dressed up as pirates. <laughs> and we played Irish music 
as pirates to give candy to the kids that came to our house. Wow. There's maybe 500 kids that come to our house. It's a, it's a pretty active neighborhood at Halloween. And I, I, I loved it. I heard kids like, this is the best house ever. <laughs> you know, um, th- th- things like that. Sure. W- ways of my life bleeding into and blending with one another. Sure. But you mentioned, you know, phasing out of teaching. Yeah. I don't like grading papers. You, you know, that's why I asked because every time I get I, on I'd Facebook. I'd love to not do that anymore. I would say... Th- Two out of five of your posts is about grading papers. <laughs> you know, I think any teacher will tell you it's it's existential. Yeah. It's nightmarish. It'll turn you into a nihilist. It really yeah. will. Uh-huh. And, and you have to be a strong person, I think, to, to, to not let that happen. Sure. Uh, and I've been doing it for 30 years, and wow. it's an important part of my job, and I get it, and the students need it. They like it. They mm-hmm. appreciate it. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't ever get any easier. I've complained to my good friends, you know, poor Eric, long-suffering Eric has dealt with, you know, my kvetching every semester now for 20-some-odd years. Um, It simply doesn't get any easier. Yeah. And I'd love to let that go. But I think to let that go, you have to let go the interaction with students. You have to let go your wonderful relationships with colleagues. You have to let go to the the five shows a day kind Mm -hmm. of aspect of teaching, which I really love. I Mm -hmm. love the storytelling. I love the performance. I love the interaction with young people, and that would all have to get thrown out as well. Sure. Along with health insurance and a regular paycheck mm-hmm. to live the life then of an artist, mm-hmm. hoping for the next commission or hoping for the next, uh, you know, royalty check. And that's, it's, it, I, I got kids in college, you know, sure. I can't do that. And so I think for the foreseeable future, I will stay at the university. It's a great job. They love me there. I love it there. Um, what are Emma's plans as far as college? Do you know? Emma wants to be a chef. Wow, okay. But she wants to get a college degree. So she wants to find a university that gives a four-year degree, but that she can major in pastry arts. Wow, okay. And there are only a couple in the country. When she was 11, she decided this, and she went on the internet, and she researched and said, all right, Dad, I found a college. This is my 11-year-old daughter. Oh, where are you going to go? I want to go to Nickel State in Thibodeau, Louisiana. You're kidding. Right? And so it's one of the only uh, colleges in the country where you can take math and philosophy and history sure. and accounting and also major in pastry arts and how to gut a fish and, and, and everything in between. And so, um, you know, she, she was 11. A lot can change. Yeah, yeah, she yeah. can decide to become an astronaut or a mermaid or whatever she wants to be. But if she decides to do that, you know, it's not, it's not bad to have a pastry chef in the family. Yeah, does she practice at home? She does. You, you, don't, you don't look like you eat any of it. <laughs> well, when she makes buttercream frosting, I, I cannot say no to that. Uh, that's terrific. And how long are you here in L.A.? What, what's your plan? It's just a very quick trip. That's it? Uh, I came in on Sunday night, and I'll go back on Tuesday. I see. It was just a quickie just to see Eric and Hila. I even snuck in. and Really? I didn't under the, wa- under the radar? Friends. Yeah. All right, well, I won't post this for a week. So, yeah. <laughs> Kath and Mike, I love you. I'll see you next time. <laughs> well, Tony, thanks so much for talking to me. It was fun. Over I really anytime. appreciate it. It's nice to see you. Yeah. All right. Thanks again. Take care. <laughs>